Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we talk about the architectural balance between learning curve, architecture, um, building things that can scale, but having to acknowledge a certain amount of overhead for that, and the attitude of just get it done, don't make my tools complex, let me be very productive quickly, uh, even if that doesn't scale well. And we see this as an ongoing uh, challenge. Uh, in this case, uh, two engineers from RackN were leading a discussion in which we really talk about the balance that we try to achieve at RackN as we design our product, with the understanding that ultimately scale really does matter. But if users have trouble understanding how the product works at first, that learning curve can uh, push people away so that they never actually get into the product. And that balance, finding the right balance in that, is absolutely essential to success. I know you'll enjoy the conversation and hopefully find interesting ways to apply it to your own technology journey. What is today's topic, by the way? Uh, very good question. Um, balancing architectural overhead versus getting things done. All right, fun. Do, do we have a specific... Uh, um, like Rob usually mentions like that there's yep. a particular reason why the topic was mm -hmm. chosen. Um, yeah, actually, in fact, we do. Um, so uh, here at RackN, our platform, Digital Rebar platform, has a lot of design and architectural assumptions um, baked around concepts of scale. And we do things a little differently um, than a lot of the common automation solutions out there. And so we're finding there's a bit of an impedance mismatch between um, the architectural overhead of learning how to operate and use our platform versus the skill set um, in the field for a lot of people that are just trying to get things done. So hence the, the topic. Um, and the sort of the issue is uh, the common way of doing automation um, works for a lot of people, um, but we believe has scaling problems. We've seen has scaling problems um, in the field. And so if somebody needs or wants to grow larger and scale more, it requires understanding our platform better. And we're working to meet um, customer expectations and make it easier for customers to onboard with their existing patterns for automation to create less friction and a smoother on-ramp to using existing tooling, but as their needs grow to automate and grow and scale capability, uh, an easier journey to learning the platform instead of coming in cold and having to learn a whole, whole lot of how we do things to be able to get things done today. And so 
an, ex, an explicit example is sort of the Terraform and Ansible story. Terraform and Ansible are very common tools today that a lot of folks use uh, for getting things done, down and dirty. And once you get an SSH key in place, Ansible uses, for example, the Ansible pattern. Ansible uses SSH as the transport path for the agent communication to the target environment that it's orchestrating or uh, automating. And um, managing that path as it scales is an expensive proposition. And so that's where some of the tooling like uh, Tower AWX have come into play. Terraform Enterprise are designed to be um, larger order um, automation platforms to help you scale that story um, in a different way than how we do our scale. But we find that a lot of our customers, they understand Ansible and they, they have you know, a set of Ansible playbooks they just want to run. And they want to effectively automate that and scale that in their environment, but they don't really want to learn anything new. You're, you're describing uh, the behavior of the... Um, I'm trying to figure out how to say this nicely. I, I'm going to say it in one way. It's it by does by no means it's intended to be derogatory. But you're describing the old guard sysadmin behavior, someone who's entrenched with their tooling, in this case Ansible, and is comfortable and, and doesn't want to leave that comfort zone. And, and again, like I don't mean this in, in a derogatory manner. Like it it. It just happens that when you get comfortable, you you don't want to leave that, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it, it's a, it's an interesting proposition, also that what, what you're bringing up there, in that um, you're trying to make adoption of the rebar. Or, or at least the usage of the show rebar feel closer to the tools that um, um, that uh, people currently use. Um, it kind of it's probably not not the the, the same scenario, but but it, it almost feels like you're taking the built dash of like okay if. If all you have a hammer, everything starts to look like like a nail, and, and you're putting it over its like on its head and saying like, well, how can I make my tool look like a nail for the people who only have a hammer, or or they have a hammer kind of mindset? Sure, um, and you know, realistically, Ansible is a good tool for you know for automation and consistency in a lot of respects, and mm -hmm. so. Um, tapping into that knowledge and experience should be an easier path in our platform. And, and we, we recognize that and we're striving to, to be better that way, but we're trying to understand a little bit about um, where do you make the dividing line between dragging forward the tool sets that someone knows and is comfortable with, i.e. their comfort food and introduce them to you know a new cuisine no oh, that's a bad analogy i'm i'm great i'm full of many bad analogies <laughs> but um it's, it's a valid one though 
<laughs> sort of, yeah. We'll we'll take it. I'll take the the, the analogy. All right, thanks, Klaus. Um, and so, but you know, it's it because the reality is we're not going to be successful approaching those customers if we aren't if there isn't a way for them to onboard quickly and yet how do we bring them forward in a different way of thinking about applying and approaching automation to an orchestration to a story um which we'll never get to if we can't onboard them in the first place that is an interesting challenge. Um, it, I guess the the million dollar question is like is are are there any gaps in the Ansible type of or orchestration approach um, that are glaring that are just not reconcilable? Um, with how you, uh, and by that I mean RackN uh, emissions, um, your tooling is, is expected to be used. Um, because the, 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 if the answer is yes, there are gaps like that, then I would argue that the effort is probably or the effort to, to make digital rebar feel more like ansible is it, probably going to be futile just because again you, you've already identified that there is a gap and um it, it just means that you're pushing the the uh, the the learning uh curve or, or learning hill further uh, down down the road um if if you if you think that that none of those gaps are unsurmountable then sure you, you can you might as well do it um there are approaches taken by other uh tooling um communities um that might be um perhaps uh useful uh such as uh for example uh, taking um taking the the, the schemas for let's say for, for asphalt playbooks and having um uh, command line tools that help you transform them into whatever schema you use for digital rebar Yeah, and that I kind of it's something I think about because um you know when I look at how we do things in digital rebar, we're much more closely aligned to SaltStack and SaltStack's methodology for applying uh automation principles um and allowing it to scale much better. But SaltStack's nowhere near as popular in mm -hmm. the current um systems administration operations. Uh, you know, sort of circles. Yeah. And so part of the, the effort that we're seeking to go through is to um, be able to tap into a customer base that has a skill set that we can help them be better with. Incidentally, 
um, it's actually an area where we have uh, a need to shore up our capabilities. We are a very good uh, automation and orchestration platform that applies infrastructure as code. Um, we have a lot of ability to create composable uh, automation or composable orchestration, um, but we don't have a lower layer um, library for things like file exists, package installed, um, service and you know those are constructs that are nitty gritty hands on operators problems that Ansible solves. There's a lot more to Ansible than just that, but that's an example of. Um, what Ansible or any of the other configuration management tooling brings to our platform. We've always had a story of we embrace other configuration management tools to finish the story because coding it in Bash or Python leaves you, the operator, to deal with those low, lower layer constructs that most people don't want to deal with. They, want, they just want to say um, Nginx installed and enabled. They don't want to deal with package repositories, Linux distribution differences, um, you know, startup script differences, um, system D versus, you know, any of the other ways to start services. Um, they just want Nginx, right? And so that's a gap that we're trying to make easier to bridge in our platform to onboard a tooling, but also the way we do things makes that there's a, an interface there that creates drag between the two ways of doing things. And so um, I, I very much hear what you're saying, Klaus, which is um, expressing a need to do things better, but at the same time, it doesn't matter if you're better. Um, in my opinion, um, and I know that many people differ in this, I, I think that SaltStack is better from an architectural standpoint than Ansible, but I can't deny the fact that Ansible is significantly more successful with the way they do things. And you know, I don't care about market dynamics or you know backgrounds or all of that things. That's just the state of the reality of things today, right? And so you know, we have to acknowledge that better isn't necessarily the right way to do things. Um, embracing other constructs is more important to being a successful platform and a successful solution. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking from personal experience, um, the, the, a likely reason for the, uh, for why, or what I believe is, is uh, the reason why Ansible has seen a better success in adoption is that the effort to get started with it is, so much lower. I mean, you 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 start. You, you can start Ansible by by just creating a, a YAML file and, and running, running Ansible against it. You you don't need to have um, any server installed. You don't need to have any certs installed. Uh, other than other than your SSH certs. Um, but with that in mind, and, and given the background that you're you're given, um, I think that. You have an opportunity to integrate with Ansible, I, and I don't know how you do it currently, but 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 you probably have an opportunity to integrate with Ansible uh, via inventory plugins. So so dynamic inventories uh, with with Ansible are 
are not something that, that a lot of people use out of the box. Uh, but once you get to a um, critical mass of uh, services or, or machines that you need to manage with Ansible, they, they become indispensable in, in, in that you basically, as opposed to hard coding your inventory and saying like, okay, this service is this type, this service is that type. You just call out, it. Does, the inventory script or, or plugin just calls out to whatever API and gets that information at the time where, where, where it runs. Um, you probably have a good opportunity to provide something like that from back end and then uh, tie that in with, for example, Ansible pull, uh, which then gets run on demand or, or on a scheduled basis. Hi, Rocky, by the way. Yeah, so we started out with um, balancing our architectural overhead versus getting things done. And we're, <sighs> I was just expressing, you know, we have an architectural direction that's creating sort of an impedance mismatch with um, a lot of people, a lot of customer opportunities. And um, so we're considering how we make things easier to onboard customers with their current expectations for automation. And Ansible is an example story of that because Ansible is very popular, but we do things uh, relatively differently than Ansible for what we believe are good reasons. but to get to the point to use our platform effectively and successfully, there's too much architectural learning and knowledge somebody has to you know, take a journey up towards. And so just getting things done, how important is that versus long-term learning Mac, a new thing? Mac versus Windows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it seems like possibly what would be reasonable, but might not because you're too small a team, probably, is that you need to have the two paths, one path that gets you to the complex stuff that you guys really uh, excel at and another path that gets you to the starting gate so that these folks can actually use what skills they have to get started, but then come, come to the realization that, that your way is more advantageous to them. So in interpreting that is you need to do some work to make it easier for people to onboard, but try and provide a path for them to learn how to move into our way of thinking while still embracing their current right. concepts, constructs, and solution. Right. So, so give them an Ansible starter pack that you can then use that sets up everything architecturally so so that your your architecture and process like salt stack or whatever actually can be used to do all the uh day one day two stuff but give them a day zero that they're familiar with yeah and and that's sort of the the path that we're 
we're trying to figure out. It's just trying to figure out the right balance between making it easier to onboard, you know, for somebody, you know, putting it down in simple terms, somebody has a set of playbooks that they've learned to operate in Ansible to do some level of consistent automation in their environment. And we want to be able to embrace that, but how Ansible applies its automation is where the impedance mismatch is and how we build things to be reusable and templatizing things is a mismatch in how Ansible playbooks work. And so the, the path that we have today is you need to rework your Ansible playbooks to make them more friendly in our automation templating engine and then run them in a different manner. And that doesn't make people happy because they have to learn new things. It doesn't matter that now you can run Ansible on 5,000 machines in parallel with our platform because of two reasons. One, they may not have that scale problem to worry about. So 50 machines or 20 machines, which is often more the case with an Ansible story, is okay if it takes an hour, hour and a half to run a series of playbooks across multiple machines instead of 10 minutes across 5,000 machines. 5,000 machines would be many days of running things the way they currently run. That's not acceptable. So, you know, there's a difference in customer scale and expectations and requirements, um, but we are too focused on the, this is how you do it to go do 5,000 machines in parallel. You need to turn 18,000 machines over in a, a weekend change control window. We can do that, but you're going to have to rework things, right? And that's okay if you're managing a fleet of 18,000 machines because it's worth that architectural learning and effort and overhead. But in a lot of cases, getting things done, um, I just need to be able to run Ansible on 20 machines or 50 machines. Uh, some of those customers will scale and grow maybe not towards that 18,000 story level. So it's important for them to onboard and then start learning and being able to pick up the new way of how we do things and rework things. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. And that's what I was saying to Klaus earlier, that if we never onboard the customer, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> you don't have a customer. <laughs> so there's no use going through the exercise. So and yeah. Yeah. So the so another question I have is, will their current Ansible stuff work in your framework at all? Or does it all have to be transformed before it works? Currently, it mostly has to be transformed. We can easily get them to the path where they can use it. But there, this is where a lot of the impedance of how Ansible works and what people's expectations are and how you run Ansible versus the actual action of running a playbook, right? So there's two primary ways you run Ansible. There's uh, you pull a playbook down on a machine, you have Ansible local on the machine, you run Ansible uh, local against those playbooks on the current machine. That's the path that we can automate 18,000 machines successfully. Mm -hmm. um, it does in a lot of cases require making changes to the playbooks because 
each machine environment is different, and we can make those changes. Uh, if you use our Golang templating constructs, which means decomposing or recomposing, I should say, uh, the playbooks. Uh, we can make it work just straight out of the box. It's up to the operator to deal with the differences. The other path is you run Ansible and let Ansible use SSH as its agent transport path to log into the machine. And then it pulls everything forward it needs to through SSH and then runs Ansible on the machine and encloses the SSH connection. And that path is where you run into uh, performance scalability issues. Um, right. Tower yeah, solves that. If you want to go by tower and you set up a whole bunch of containers, uh, so you have lots and lots of containers to solve the parallelism story, um, which we can do. Um, so we can absorb both paths, but Today, there's too much drag in using Ansible and um, its current uh, expectation that we have for modifying it, bringing it into our infrastructure as code story, uh, making it available and use, reusable across lots of machines. So how long does it take to transform, uh, say, a 50 machine? Um, Ansible playbook to your way? If you know what you're doing, not very long at all, but that's the problem. So well, that's yeah, the but architectural overhead of learning Golang templating, content pack uh, creation and bundling to make those changes and distribute those changes, create a single artifact or package out of those changes and then add them to the platform. All of that is pretty straightforward and easy if you know the platform, if you know our DSL and um, in our implementation of Golang right. templating, right? Most people are Ansible, YAML, and Jinja 2. So there's a lot of analog constructs that are similar. Um, we're YAML, but we're Golang templating. So, but the constructs of it's a YAML language, it's a templating language. Oh, okay. I understand this templating construct is like that templating construct. But that's a learning journey in the differences in the platforms. And that's too much for some people to successfully start using the platform and then recommend it and move so, start moving forward with it. So if you had a training course, could you would it be a one day, two day, one week? course how many how long would it take to train and do an example or maybe even train and do a 50 machine uh conversion uh in a course for these guys i, I think it's sub one day um okay. and, and it could be anywhere from an hour to a full day depending on the person's skill set and capability i mean there there are people that have they run Ansible playbooks and they have no idea what the YAML represents in the Ansible playbooks. They have no idea what Jinja 2 templating is. They've just followed a one, two, three guide somewhere. And those folks are going to have a lot more of a difficult journey. And the reality is there are more of those out there than not. Um, right. If you are comfortable with what a YAML playbook looks like, and if you are comfortable with Jinja 2 templating, um, it's not a particularly hard journey to make that transition, assuming you're willing to 
apply a couple hours of time to doing that. So what you're saying is that there are operators out there and then there are uh, SREs, DevOps, whatever, that actually have the capability. So the operators, you wouldn't want to focus the whole course. You wouldn't want to focus a course on them. You're, they're just told to do it with these guys instead of those guys. They're just handed a set of instructions. But the guys who actually can understand and do it would be the ones who would profit from the course, a course. And that's something where you could do it as a as part of the initial consulting uh, training, et cetera. But that would have to be a, a training bun, a training consulting bundle added on to your uh, let's get you up and let's sell you our product. Um, so I see a couple, one, one way to do it is to find out if the organization has folks who actually understand how, what the archi- how the architecture works and understand how it can be transformed, even if they don't know what the transformation is, your transformation, but they can be taught the transformation because they understand what's there. The other option, the other thing is educating uh, the general populace on just the advantages of using Golang and and doing the the uh, uh, doing the Ansible locally, and so that needs to be just like generic kind of indoctrination of look, you can use Ansible better if you do it this way, uh, so you get more mindset in your direction. But if you had for you, part of your sales evaluation should probably be, is there anyone in there, this company's operations organization that understands the deployment well enough that they would benefit from uh, an hour or a day's worth of transformation help? If there's nobody there, then it's kind of like useless for you other than a generic education that you do at conferences. But if that person or that team exists, then you've got, you can make a sale through uh, a day's worth of training and consultation. Well, you can make a sale by selling the training along with the transformation. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Do you guys want to talk about next year, maybe? I'm curious to know, like, what you guys are working on next year. <laughs> what kind of tech you're going to be playing with? Yeah, so like extrapolating out is, you know, what's the next thing that isn't Ansible, or what's the next way of is that what you're talking about, Mike? Uh, just anything, anything new and exciting for next year. Like for me, for instance, um, like me personally, I've been playing with a lot of uh, Grafana's tools. It's like Tempo and stuff like that. And it's got me thinking like, why why do I need so many different tools for metrics and stuff like that? And metrics, traces, log, it seems like there's a tool for each of those things. But in my mind, like the ultimate tool would have storage for all three of those things. And so... 
looking forward to maybe seeing something like that develop next year. Well, I mean, partially that the reason is that uh, storing metrics is significantly different than than storing logs, uh, and and then you you have traces which combine both of them and, and it becomes much more difficult. Um, so typically, there's the I, I I've seen a couple of approaches, and none of them stands out individually as the winner, but they they all have the the different strong points. You got time series databases like Prometheus, which are great for storing metrics and um, things that are consistent. Um, so again, series of, of data um, with little variability. Uh, then you got your traditional relational databases, uh, which do in, in some cases get co-opted for observability storage as well, like timescale DB. Um, and then you got the like storages like Elasticsearch, which lets you put in arbitrary structured data. Uh, and it's also relatively fast at querying it, but it, it, it's it's a beast in terms of resource consumption. Um, so when when you first have no idea what your data looks like, then then Elasticsearch is likely the or something like Elasticsearch is likely the better choice because it, it just lets you store things and then sort sort it later. Um, but then you you get to to the scaling wall uh, where scaling up Elasticsearch becomes prohibitively expensive, particularly for observability. And, and at that point, most people started looking at, well, let, let, let's go with dedicated storage, like, again, um, Prometheus uh, or InfluxDB or, or, or things like that. Um, and now we are, like, with, with the... With extra focused observability is getting on, on, on the stand under de facto standards like, like open telemetry. Uh, we're starting to see a blend of that where we're choosing high performance storage for metrics coupled with log storage um, or, or, or any other kind of um, database for unstructured data um, that you can still correlate your data in. Um, so, but but I agree that it is, uh, as a user, it, it is frustrating that there's no unified uh, solution. Um, it is even more frustrating that the solutions that are, that are out there are quite difficult to scale. And ultimately, th there is there is there are very very few products that let you scale indefinitely like from from one cluster to 500 clusters kind of kind of level without major architecture changes yeah, i mean on the kind of topic of metric i don't know if you played with or looked at open telemetry libraries at all 
I, I have started looking at it, and um, unfortunately, I, I am I am backlogged with with, oh. with other tasks. Otherwise, uh, I will spend a significant portion of, of this year doing an actual uh, large scale proof of concept implementation with it. But it, it is it is very promising, and right. it has industry giants backing it. So we're um, trying to poison it, but. That's just um, me. I, I I don't see as as much as many uh, companies going against it. I I think it's been been accepted as the winner, um, but because it it is widely adopted, and I see pretty much most other companies um, starting to adopt it, like Grafana. Uh, um, even like even Google and, and Amazon are are starting to offer mm-hmm. open telemetry solutions, like like managed open telemetry solutions. Uh, Klaus and Rocky, I need to drop real quick. I made uh, Mike co-host. Um, I have a guy here to get up on the roof and look at a roof leak. He's a bit early. All um, right. Mike, I'll let you close things out and just want to say thank you, uh, Klaus and Rocky. Appreciate your input. Sure. Got to, to discuss. Cheers. Uh, good, good luck, luck with the roof. roof. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. I, I, I said the, the open telemetry thing more, and Jessica, with uh, OpenStack, it was kind of weird. Like It seemed like the more vendors pouring into OpenStack, the more fragmented OpenStack became until uh, yeah. Kubernetes is kind of going through a similar thing-ish where everything's an operator and you don't know what you're supposed to install anymore and the platform's becoming the kitchen sink of abstractions and flexibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we, we, we've discussed OpenStack uh, in, in the past and in, uh, in, the, in the, these meetings. Uh, I think the consensus uh, among the, the present ones is that OpenStack was not so much a victim of too many contributors, uh, but more of a victim of uh, its own bureaucracy and how they decided to handle change management. Would you agree, Rocky? Uh, To an extent, but I think the, the, there's also like what Mike said, it's like, how do you handle the explosion of all these different opinions joining and OpenStack just refused to form an opinion. And so everything was okay. Mm-hmm. And everything Ex- became a project and yeah. Yeah. Except anything that wasn't pure Linux. So there was this weird kind of, if you tried to do it with anything but Linux, we were going to fight you tooth and nail. <laughs> but otherwise, everything's a project. <laughs> and I believe that that OpenStack has has found its way uh, in that it's found the community that needs it, and they're maintaining it and taking it forward. But a lot of folks. Uh, anyone who's in the public cloud space doesn't need it because the public 
cloud space provides and provides Kubernetes. Well, the the American public cloud space. If you have to run your own public, if you're running your own cloud, then folks are still using OpenStack to create their clouds since they're since AWS and Microsoft and Google have not open sourced those guys. <laughs> so it provides the infrastructure, but it's it's back down. So in some ways it's matured, but it's also found more of its real community. And I think you'll see that in lots of projects where the hype cycle, when it's at its peak, if you don't handle it right, uh, the other side down is really ugly. But <laughs> mm -hmm. well, OpenStack still is like the second largest project out there on the interweb. Which is interesting. You would think it would be Kubernetes. You took the Kubernetes ecosystem, you'd probably match or surpass OpenStack, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Like, Kubernetes, uh, and this is something I said in the past, that they, they have always been very careful about scope creep. So yeah. It, they've kept themselves small because they wanted to keep themselves small. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, yes, they 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 fomented the, their ecosystem, the like the CNCF and cloud native uh, yep. applications. So um, I, I'm not surprised that Kubernetes is not the the largest or second largest project as a result of that. Yeah. And they're two different focuses, but uh, the, the Kubernetes folks, like you said, they've managed to keep their focus exactly where it needed to be, or most or close enough to where it needed to be that it keeps cycling back to where it needs to be. They have a closed closed loop on that aspect, which mm -hmm. is nice. Wow. I mean, in a sense, uh, that is kind of dam damning of OpenStack that, that they are the largest uh, <laughs> or, or second largest. Especially as they probably hit their peak contributor count. They ago. have hit their peak contributor count, but they've also hit a maturity point where pretty much at this point, it's how do you stand up a large cloud that you actually physically have, have to manage? How do you, how do you stand up a, a physical instance or multiple physical instances of clouds and interact with other uh, public clouds? And that's kind of what they're where they are now. And it certainly works for things like CERN <laughs> and VW. And Vex Host. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't think I'm mistaken. I might be mistaken, but I can't see actually control controlling a physical data center with just Kubernetes. <laughs> you can. Um, if you look at like the metal cube stuff combined with um, like a Juniper, Cisco, Topa rack operator. Yeah. Mm. And I think I mean, you can, you're going to probably see Nutanix start going that route too. In my well, opinion. it depends upon what VMware decides. Is it VMware? No, HP, HP. Uh, if that HP Nutanix things uh, happens. Yeah. I mean, you, you can man manage the DSM with Kubernetes, but you, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> yes. I, I actually remember going to a talk by Disney about cloud. And the Disney folks are like, they really knew their shit down to the point where somebody gave them a virtual machine. <laughs> but they had no idea what went on in the data center below virtual machines or containers. Yeah. I mean, And everything worked great. <laughs> but Just like, like, uh, like the, 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 the common saying of like no self-respecting sysadmin would be running uh, internet connected or, or IoT uh, networks at, at home. No, no self-respecting data center admin would, would be using Kubernetes to, to manage <laughs> yep. you, you're, you're putting the You're putting the cart before the horse there. Yep. And that's why OpenStack still exists. <laughs> because they actually have spent enough time getting bits and pieces of that right that that it's still usable. It's still preferable. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it addresses the the bootstrap problem like, like with, with kubernetes you, you need infrastructure to the infrastructure to run your cluster on um mm -hmm. so if if you need to bootstrap your whole data center from scratch you cannot start with kubernetes i mean that that that's one of the reasons why digital rebar exists right like you, yep you need to have a good point of orchestration to begin with but you could argue that what, you can't start your, your data center without digital rebar because you need something for that to run on, right? Same thing with Kubernetes, though. Like you're still going to need a control plane somewhere to start things. Yeah. And I think in some ways that was part of what OpenStack was, was working towards, getting an answer to, to the fact that lots of people were sitting there conflating all sorts of things together. And OpenStack was this big conflagration. And 
it eventually settled out, but getting the bits and pieces on the right planes was always uh, yeah, the the part of the issue with OpenStack. Though that was always part of the discussion, and it's not anymore. They don't have to. They figured it out. Kubernetes figured it out. It's like there's certain things we don't do, and OpenStack. It's like there's certain things we throw to Kubernetes. Period. The end. <laughs> Actually, it's not pure at the end, but yeah. <laughs> well, one of the other things that, that hurt OpenStack uh, adoption, um, or at least did in the past, uh, is that it was difficult yeah. to work with OpenStack uh, on, unless you had a Greenfield project. Yes. Like it, it, like migrating from existing infra existing infrastructure into OpenStack, it, it was hard. And back when Digital Rebar was trying to do that, whoa, <laughs> they were glad when Kubernetes came along. <laughs> but um, I think one of the the biggest pluses that OpenStack has at the moment is that they're um, ironic. They're, the bare metal stuff is, it is still extremely useful either within OpenStack or standalone. And the standalone I think is what lots of people are using to, to do the jumpstart actually the, into other control planes. When it comes to like a, a master control plane, global control plane, what do you guys think you'd use or use today or want to use for something like that? Klaus has to answer that one. I haven't been <laughs> deep into it in so long that. Uh, um. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the right person to ask for that because for the for the last couple of years I, I've been uh, I've been working entirely on on cloud native projects. So um, so for me the the, the master control plane for again for the past couple of years has been like AWS or, or Google Cloud Console. Um, now, this is this is of course significantly different. Going to be significantly different in the data center where it shouldn't be your starting point. Um, but it, it also comes back to to the bootstrapping problem, right? So, so um, I I don't think there is a clear answer for that. For some. A cloud console is going to be a reasonable control plane, particularly when your infrastructure is across multiple data centers and you need to synchronize it. That then having a non-localized source of truth uh, is valuable. Um, but in other cases, um, yeah, you you might start. You you could start with something like OpenStack uh, and, and and make that your control your your control plan. Um, 
It's very situational. Yeah, like I said, OpenStack does have a niche, an important niche, if you don't start with a public cloud. Yeah, this is probably a, a good topic for your for another day to, to discuss um like a control and, plane on, on on source of truth and on data residency and permanence. Yes. And there are a couple of folks that uh we could probably if we should we could try to suck into the meeting to uh, apply their expertise and uh, uh, experience. But good topic for another day. Uh, I don't think of anything else to you guys. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, nothing that I could that we could squeeze into the next couple. Yeah. Minutes. Yeah. So interesting discussion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No problem. Absolutely. Until <laughs> next time. Until yep. next time. See you. See you guys. Cheers. Bye bye. really enjoy conversations where very pragmatic questions out of our own engineering team can surface into the cloud 2030. The things that we're dealing with are universal challenges. Uh, and if it helps people be better product designers or product consumers, then that's a value, uh, hopefully, that you get out of being part of the cloud 2030, listening to our podcast, or even better, coming into our sessions and joining the discussion learn more at the 23rd.cloud. Looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.